Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the second episode of the Writer's Table. Um, I thought the the first episode went really well, and I was really pleased with the content and the discussion and the participation. So thank everybody that was there for that, and thank everybody who's here tonight um, to talk about stuff. And uh, we're going to get started. Um, I'm going to put Julie on the air and... um, I want you to know that you guys almost got something really rare and exciting and and hilar- and just absolutely hilarious, but my husband ran away. So that's a call I'm going to say on that, because um, he might surprise me and come in here and do it, but I doubt it. Um, but it would have been epic if he had done it. So sorry, sorry he ran away. Um, he flew away. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I should have told him no. He asked if he could do something, and I immediately said yes. And then he was then he didn't expect me to say yes, and so he ran. It's a button for Jilly, but it it told me no. It, I don't know why. It said no. We just stopped. Yeah, it's that's me. Um, I know. I was just testing to make sure it wasn't just you know the the dashboard. Um, no. Yeah, Jill. I think you're going to have to call back in. You know, try again. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's very rude. No, I don't it's very to. rude. Um, but yeah. Hey, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How about you? <laughs> I'm good. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Very southern. That's very southern of me. Like I, like I don't do that. You know. But I'll be that woman I, you if know, you're ever in the south and you hear somebody, "Hey y'all!" across the parking lot. It might be me. I have a question like, for you. No. Did you wave at me? Okay. Did you wave did. at me when you said hi? <laughs> Both times. Both times. Yes, I did. Yeah. Yes, I did. That's just fabulous. I love it. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm very southern. Um, that, that's just the way you're, it is. Uh, you're absolutely darling. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I'm just horrible. We're gonna. Uh, you guys need to be asking some questions in the chat room to pick up some topics. Um, we haven't had you on the air since we started talking about the quantum bang. Are you gonna do the quantum bang? Mm-hmm. You are? Have um, you plotted? Don't tell me anything. It's a secret. Because <laughs> you have no God. idea how hard it is to talk about my project because I'm so fucking excited about it. Lady Holder knows. I mean, you can talk to us. Yeah. yeah, I know, but you I can can't talk to us. air about it. I can't talk about the podcast. Oh. I've, um, I'm halfway through my first chapter, uh, and I am I am terribly excited, and I'm really pleased with the chemistry of my characters, and um, but I can't talk about it the way I normally would, so it's it's very mm-hmm. rude, mm-hmm. very rude. Well, my my whole thing right this second is I'm trying to get the second story from um, Rough Trade done mm-hmm. around the fact that I work and people in my office are assholes. Um, and then once I get that done, I will flip over to paying attention to Quantum Bang because, good God, um, I feel like an underachiever because I don't have anything started. Uh, I have an idea. 
Um, and we'll see where it leads. Mm. Okay. Ah. I want to hear about it all about later in the chat room. Our You're not going to hear room. about it. I can't tell you. Oh, yeah, that chat room. Okay, yeah. I'll figure that one out. I'm a moderator for one get... thing. I'll know all about it. <laughs> there are no secrets That's from good. Kira. <laughs> I'm, gl- I'm guessing that you're absolutely thrilled because it's that thing of I got, I've got to know everything. I, I am, I am thrilled to be involved because I hate secrets. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're the one. Anyway, anyways, let's get the Jill Meister on the air, and hopefully this works this time. Spinning. That's so weird. So to just refresh. to give you an idea, yeah, just to give you an idea, I was pretty certain I was not going to be getting on, so I made dinner, mm-hmm. and it's um, barbecue chicken, roasted potatoes, summer squash, cauliflower, those um, garlic flower stems, uh, onions, and, and garlic. Anybody else hungry now? I'm not. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> there's, a picture, there's a picture of it I'm up on my Facebook. I'm not hungry it, you've got a slight problem nowadays, it seems, of, of being hungry, as in you're not. I know. Yeah. You know, and, okay, let's see. Did that work? Bastard, no. Why did you not work? No, I don't want the image. I want the image address. Because I'm remarkably evil and willing to share. That is so bizarre that I could turn you on, but not Julie. And that's not the way I meant to say that. You turn me on (laughs) in lots of different ways, hon. I'm sure I turn Julie on too. (laughs) Just not on the deck. Yeah, that's my dinner. I'm mad. I'm mad. Um, I, you know, I, I have a love hate relationship with food right now. Um, and it's because of, um, the, the diabetes and, um, mm-hmm. um, all that jazz. And so getting your A1C back under control and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I did, but I did get my A1C from an 8.1 to a 5.2 in three months. Is that official? Yes. Is that official? Hot damn. God, I am so thrilled with you. That's so fabulous. yeah, I busted, it. I busted a groove on that. So. Mhm. Uh, yeah, I was really pleased. Yeah, I'm. I'm. God. Jilly, can you hear me? Oh, it worked. Yeah, hey, it worked. There's a Jilly. I did launch a separate studio thing. Okay, you'll kind of let you hold um, around as you eat your food and not even be mad at you. Hey, look, if you were close enough, I'd ship it uh, to you or at least, you know, wander <laughs> it over to your house. But if I stick this in an envelope and mail it, it's going to be nasty. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It would be bad. It would be really bad. <laughs> it would be very bad. Okay, okay enjoy so your food. I plan on it. Toodles. I'm, not, I'm, I'm a little mad. Okay, bye. <laughs> I might need 
need you to mute your mic because it's spinning on you too. <laughs> Jesus, I'm on mute. I'm, I'll mute me. Okay. One, or two. Or you can hang up and call again. True, I can do that too. I'll be back. Okay. Okay. It's a thing. It's a thing over here. I don't even know. Blog talks having issues. It's a good thing. It's one of those nights, and it's a good thing we're not in, because who knows what shenanigans be going on over there. Oh Plus God, I hate that thing. I know, right? I hated my um, chat room being censored. How dare they? That that chat room censorship was really annoying. But also funny. Especially like when it would like censor things with dick in the middle. It wasn't actually yeah. like dick. It was like dictation. Not not dictation. What was it? What was that one? That one word that had dick in the middle. I remember. People, we people would get um, Okay. <clears throat> the blog talk was all time violating my constitutional rights to free speech. <laughs> I know that's not how it works. It was Riddick. It was Riddick. Rob got it. Um, yeah, it would censor Riddick. And all of a sudden you'd have the uh, string of asterisks. And you'd be like, what's wrong with blog talk? Why is it doing that? <laughs> anyway. Or worse, you would put up, you'd put up a, um, we had there like a web link, a, a, a URL that had a censored word in the URL. And then it'll break the URL. You're all toast when it's censored like that. Did we get any questions? Are we? Because we didn't. We did had very little time with the last question we worked on the last time. We could start with that if we didn't get any questions yet. Mm, what was the question from last time? The last question we had last time. I'm moving back up. I've opened. Oh, um, the start of our. Um, how to begin? The start of the process. Yeah, the yeah the what is what gets you started? Um, is an idea for seeing a snapshot. We talked about that a little bit, and then said, "What's the first thing that sparks you, and what do you do to get it going on paper?" And we talked about a little bit about that after the fact because it came up. I think on Facebook, somebody mentioned that they have a really hard time finding that opening scene, that first line, um, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I had to update my Skype um, uh, app, and everything's a little off kilter. Like it's a little too loud, and, <laughs> and then it's not loud enough. And you know, I had everything set just the way I wanted. It. Then they made me update. They even sent me an email that that was basically a threat. Update or else. Well, it was more like, we are no longer supporting that version of Skype. You must update. And I'm like, are you going to hold my shit hostage? What? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's the start of my process. There's my holder starting in, in the middle again. In the middle <laughs> of a bang. Little In a literal bang. Now, that's I the always... Kind of, Go ahead. Sometimes people take advice a little too literally. Like sometimes the starting in the middle just wound up being confusing. But when people start in the middle of sex scenes, there's something just so amazing about that. It's like the first word is, you know, 
there's a whole lot of dicking going on, and it's like, this is epic. I love this. <laughs> this is going to be it's amazing. Like, it's like, wow. See, here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing. Sex is difficult to write, and a lot of writers put writing off sex for last. So when you've got a writer opening up their story with sex, <laughs> that's confidence. <laughs> Here, have some dick. Right out of the gate. No fear. <clears throat> but an, an original work, um, there really is no difference between the two when it comes to that. Um, what if this happens? And if it's original work, who is this happening to? Who is this person? What do they look like? Where are they from? And I answer all these questions, and then I, um, you, you have to know what his motivations are, or his, her motivations. Where um, did I? Am I gone? Can you hear me? Hello. Sorry, I got distracted. Oh, and then she, somebody dropped. That wasn't, that was Jilly. She dropped. Um, Oh, you guys can hear me, but you couldn't hear Jilly. Okay, okay. Hopefully it'll work when you come back. Okay, Um, because she did drop, um, the, the call did drop. I'm clicking the button. Yay! It okay. worked immediately. <laughs> Yay! There we go. <laughs> um, but uh, what I was saying, and I'll repeat it, is that I start with a question, and if it's original fiction, I ask myself who this is going to happen to, and what their motivations are, and what their goals are, and um, where they're coming from. And if it's fan fiction, it's, it's usually a more complicated question. Like, you know, what if Rodney and John ascend and go back in time, which is what happened in Iterum. Um, and so I always start with a question. How do you start? Um, well, I, mean, I have lots of questions in the story, but I always at a moment, it's kind of, I think, a similar thing, but I always start at a moment of change for the main character. Um Every once in a while, I have to like back up a tiny bit to set. Um, it's not often that I have to back up to set the frame, the change that's coming. But usually, I can just start in the scene or right before the scene where something pivotal is about to change. So, like in Emergence, um, it was when Gibbs touched Tony in his dragon form the first time, which is what set off his own change. So that was a pivotal change moment, even though it wasn't clear, I hope, to the to the reader at that point that that was a pivotal change moment. Um, and um, in, like, in All Your Reasons, it was um, Tony come, the, the day that Tony came online. Um, and I put the big clue about what was significant about that date in, in – I actually put the date on the story, I believe. And that was, I mean, if anybody knows MCU dates really, really, really well, they would know what happened on that date. Um, so I put the date and then it's just him going about work and then all of a sudden he comes online. So there's, 
some moment, usually I'm starting with something major is going to happen to this character to set them on the path that I'm going down in my story. And what is that pivotal change moment? And that's usually where I start. So it's kind of a question. What is, what is, what is, what's changing in this person's life that I'm writing about? And when does that change happen? And that's where I start. Okay. Ellie says, on RT, my first short, my first story, I plotted in a second and I pantsed. At 20K, no big difference between the two. But I'm thinking at 50 plus K, um, 50K plus, I'm thinking plotting is going to be more effective, but I'm having trouble plotting from the blank page. Do you ever try a short scene first to fill it out, then plot the story? You want to answer? Um, <laughs> I have I I have sometimes written a scene or two that was really in my head, um, just so I can get it like more entrenched in there, and then start working out the questions. Because sometimes, it's, uh, like a, a pivotal scene in the story is in the middle. Um, it's usually a climax scene, not always, but usually it's like a scene in or near the climax. Is a lot of times when when I get scene inspiration, it's something about the culmination of the story that's inspiring me. And so I'll kind of try to flesh kind of that idea out a little bit if I need to, and then start working out, working both backward, in that case, working both backward and forward to what that story would look like. But what often happens, the one the one thing I would mention that I think is can be a little bit difficult about that is that more often than not, I would say 95% of the time when I have written a scene or two as kind of like inspiration scenes, I don't wind up using them in any way, shape, or form that anything like what I originally conceived. And I think it was hard to let go of that original concept scene, and I would feel this kind of sense of disappointment, and I kind of learned to kind of let that go. That a lot of times, you know, we've talked about that whole um, you know, your plot doesn't survive engagement with writing, really, all that intact. It, it survives, but it doesn't, it, it's not unchanged. And if you're super attached to any particular element, um, you can create stumbling blocks for yourself. So I, I'd had a, I had a case of a couple, a couple of stories where I was like really disappointed the story didn't wind up with that scene as is being usable. It didn't fit. And, um, but I just had I had to kind of learn to just, and now it's part of my process that there's a ton of scenes that don't ever make it into the final, final the end, end result. Um, but the more time that goes on, the less I need to actually write whole scenes to flesh things out. Um, I just make scene notes and then start plotting. The only problem with reverse engineering a plot is that which I have done, where I'm working backward to get to the starting point that will take me forward. You can um, trying to think of how to phrase it. You can set up. You, you can really miss problems that you might catch going the other direction. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because you can, your 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 plot can be wind up really contrived. Because um, you're can, striving can feel, to get to that place. You're invent. Right. You're you're trying to shape your events to get this idea. Um, yeah. Even if the events that you're shaping are unnatural, just to keep your... right. So, 
inspiration scene. So when you're when you're looking at it, you're going, oh, well, if I want to get this character to this place, I'll just do this. But if you're writing it forward in a linear progression, and you go, but I'm doing this so that they could go there, but as I'm looking at it from the other side, it actually, that's like the most complicated thing they could possibly do in this situation, but it's the only thing that gets to my plot point, and now I'm screwed. Because there's no reason why my character would be the most difficult thing in an urgent situation. And they don't get to the my plot point if they don't do this ridiculous thing. <laughs> so Right. Um, so you can kind of create new problems for yourself. So anytime you reverse engineer a plot, which is what I, I've done quite a few times, sometimes you start writing and then you go, oh, holy shit. <laughs> Why would they do that, you know? Why would they walk on their hands for, you know, 50 blocks when they when there's nothing wrong with their feet? So, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a ridiculous example, but that's I, I've gotten in that situation where the action I'm having them take to get to my plot point didn't actually make sense in a forward progression of events. So it's just important. It ended up being ridiculous. Yeah. So if you're doing going working backwards like that, which is no, it's not a problem to do that. It's not a problem. But if you've gone to the effort of that reverse engineering your plot to get to your climax point or a pivotal scene or whatever, be sure to then walk through your plot going forward and make sure it still makes sense. I had her answer that question first because I don't do this. I don't tend to write full scenes when I'm plotting. Um, every once in a while, um, what I'll do is I'll create what I call a storyboard. And a storyboard for me is a list of plot events. And it can range anywhere from 15, 20 to 100 events, depending on the size of the um, project I have in front of me. Um, and sometimes, like when I'm outlining the events that I'm going to have take place in my plot, a piece of dialogue will come to me or a small conversation and I'll go ahead and put that down in that spot. So I'll be able to, um, because I don't want to forget it, have drop out of my head, which happens a lot lately, happens more the older you get. Um, and so I'll like insert pieces of dialogue or something that I think is funny as I'm plotting so that I'll have it for later if I want to use it. But if I get to the point where I'm writing a scene I'm going to end up panting the shit out of something. Uh, because, that's, because that's how I accidentally pant. If I sit down because I have a scene idea, and the, next, and the next thing I know I've got 50,000 words, and Lady Holder's like, did you break something? <laughs> <laughs> which you have done. You sat down with an idea. Yeah, which I have done. Without, yeah. without a broken foot, God must make a few notes, and the next thing you know you come up for air a few days later and go, huh. Huh. Look what I got. It is a legit question. Um, but, you know, that's just how my brain works. And the thing is, is um, I have been plotting for so long that if I'm in a really good writing groove, I can plot as I write and have three or four, or maybe five, six plot points ahead of me in my head as I'm writing. Yeah. But this is a skill that I developed with age. I, you know, so... I don't think even I could have done that even 10, 15 years ago. Um, but, you know, because I tell myself stories in my head all the time that never make it to paper. They just, you know, they're, they're in my head. 
And um, sometimes mm-hmm. they, you know, sometimes they come out and sometimes they don't. But when you do that a lot in your head, you can plot in advance of your of your writing if you're, you know, if you get inspired. So even when I'm pantsing, I'm not really pantsing. <laughs> yeah. Not to the definition that some people do. Right. Well, when I when I wrote, um, I I think we've talked on another podcast that like the, one of the few notable things that I have currently. And I say notable in the, you know, more than ten or fifteen thousand words uh, that I ever pants was emergence, which was only, and I at one point I could, I stopped panting and wrote out wrote the rest of the plot, but the part that I did pants was more what you're talking about, which was that I could see that first sixty or seventy or eighty k in my head, but I hit a point where the plot was so complicated and there were so many characters I couldn't hold it in my head anymore and remain consistent and that was the right point when I had to stop and resolve everything and I had to go back and kind of do some rereading and make some notes because I said it before pantsers have to do the same work that plotters have to do they just do it later because if you've got a long novel you have to eventually make notes about your timeline and you have to eventually write down your character names and you have to eventually write down the biographical details you've given them and I mean you eventually have to write all that stuff down or you're going to contradict yourself so um, I mean unless you just don't give a fuck but if you care and you're trying to get your story through an editing process and you're trying to make it as good as you can make it you, you do all the same work a plotter does you just are doing it at the end you're resolving all that detail after the fact and my kind of hybrid pantsing plotting thing um, was I hit this point where I couldn't contain I couldn't hold it ill on my head anymore and since it wound up being like 212k or whatever I just kind of I could hold that in my head when I was younger but I'm too old now. no no I can't do that now I can't do that now. just drained but there it. was a time when when I had a 10 book series in my head and now I'd be lucky to keep one book so I don't risk that anymore I don't I don't take those kinds of creative risks yeah, I told I told somebody I used to say that you know when I was younger my mind was like a steel trap and now it's more like a sieve and everything just leaks right out. I mean, and yeah. normally I stopped I stopped writing my stories. I used to, I mean there was a time when I could skip around and write the interesting scenes and fill in the less the more boring stuff. Later, I can't do that anymore. I have to be. I never really liked it, but the the issue with it became that I would get to it and I would go this doesn't quite make sense anymore. So writing scenes out of order doesn't really work for me anymore. Um, and I'm a very do, linear writer. I can't do it. Yeah. I can't if, do it the other way. If I do write something out of order, I have to just resolve that there's a solid chance it's not going to fit when I get there. But if I'm going to write a full one, but the only time um, – I don't do that is when I'm having a, there's occasional times when I'm for whatever, a little bit more memory challenge than others, which is usually cause I'm tired. And especially the first half of July, I was writing very tired and uh, I could not hold like detail for like scene ideas. I mean, I had notes, but they, the actual language and stuff I wanted to use wasn't surviving <laughs> for, for 10 minutes. And I had, um, a scene that I'd really wanted to go a certain way and I had notes about it and it just didn't come out. I just forgot everything that wasn't written down by the time I got to it. And so later when I had that same 
situation come up where I had a really firm vision on a scene, two scenes away. I was like, oh, I'm just going to write it before I forget it again because I was so frustrated with all the things I had forgotten when I was writing mm-hmm. Temper the Man um, that I didn't want that scene. Um, and it was the scene where Tony talks to Pepper towards the end. And it was because I'm really kind of acutely sensitive to um, the female partner being bashed um, in, in a breakup scene or or, you know, especially if it's switching over to male-male. It's a kind of a trope in male-male that I don't like where one partner coming out of a relationship with a woman, they bash the, the female partner. Um, so I'm a little bit sensitive to that. So I really wanted to be sure I handled Pepper as well as I could. And I didn't want that. Um, I didn't want to mess up my vision for that scene. So I went ahead and wrote it two scenes early. Uh and then um, it actually did wind up fitting, unlike usually when I skip. Um, usually when I skip ahead, things don't mesh in well, but that one meshed in fine. But yeah, it, it, that was more of a desperation thing because I was so tired of forgetting <laughs> that month. I'm like, if I forget <laughs> one more thing, I'm just going to stop this story. I can't deal. <laughs> and it's tough. You can't take that many notes. Yeah, you can't take that many notes. You just, you just. You, you, that's, if you take the amount of notes I would need to not forget shit, I would have just—it's just writing at that point. <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, I, I like I said, if I start writing a scene, it's going to be more than a scene. So, um, yeah. I just don't take those kinds of risks unless I'm just in the mood to write and I don't have any, you know, epic plan to go on, you know, that I don't have a purpose for the project. And that's really one of the things about fan fiction that's really freeing is that I can give myself permission to go completely off the rails and it's only me I have to explain myself to. Which is very liberating. There is something great about just going crazy. I'm going to do this idea as wackadoodle as possible. And I have Why to yet? Really rough praise. Mary, Hermione, and Dicker are going to go back in time and kill everybody who kill deserves everyone. it. <laughs> yes, it's what not, I you. have a volcano. <laughs> I am... I think I think honestly I don't know why what it was about rough trade because you'd think writing in public would make you more cautious, but for some reason it just I felt free to just be as crazy as I wanted to be. <laughs> so, um, I think about rough trade is that it you know we that yeah I mean it is public but um, writers who they don't see the comments unless they get approved. Um, time you hit rough trade you were not a moderator and i think that really kind of shaped your headspace when it comes to rough trade and it's very you know it is transitory because it it, it does disappear after a while and the comments go away and the end only positive comments are approved so in a way it creates a very safe um environment to play 
Yeah, and it, it was very safe, even though, and also it was also, I think, um, there's also the element of, like, this is my rough draft, and it, it's not a perfect algorithm because reactions of readers isn't necessarily reflective of what's really the readers really have going on. But if people were specifically calling out the things that I was trying to get across and like what I was trying to do was specifically, those specific things were coming through as opposed to just, you know, appreciation, but people were specifically picking up on the things I was doing. I was like, okay, so this is working because people are specifically hitting on the things that I'm, I'm trying to achieve with this. Um, It's very validating. Yeah. It it kind of lets me know that I, I, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's a little bit more, it is feedback in a way. Cause when, when you're not, if you're not getting anything too specific, it's not necessarily, but when people are going, Oh my God, I love that one thing. Um, it's a little bit easier than creating, doing something um, that you're uncertain about in a vacuum, because if you do it in a vacuum and you're, and you're like me, you write, tend to write um, completed stories before you post them. You know, until you get like an alpha feedback, you're a little bit like, I, I don't know, is this going to go over well? Are people going to see what I'm trying to do? Is it going to come off kind of creepy? I don't know. Um, whereas um, it, there's there's less of that, you know, creating in a vacuum <clears throat> in Rough Trade. And, um, and so I got to, I, I, I think my first, I, I really kind of jumped on, I'm going to go with like the crazy, the crazy pairings, which at the time for me, and I think to some degree for the fandom were a little bit out there at some, some points, um, at least in my circle of people, it was a little bit out there. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go ahead and do this pairing. And I think that became one of my favorite things actually was people going, I really didn't think I'd want to read this pairing, but I really liked it. And I'm like, yes, I have corrupted you. <laughs> I mean, sold you. <laughs> No, it's corruption. It's complete corruption. <laughs> Welcome aboard the mothership. <laughs> That's right. What I get that the most on is the Bruce Tony story. It's all your reasons. Is I, I would say uh, I would guess that like a quarter of the, the feedback I've had on that story has been, I didn't see it, but now I do. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, but I'm totally on board that train. I really enjoyed that story. I think out of all the three of them that you did that summer, I enjoyed that one the most. Me too, and I did Mothership that summer. It was my first Mothership story was that summer, yeah. and the story that that was the last one I did because I was most uncertain about it because of the pairing. And um, I finished it, and I went, oh, Boom. well, that really worked. And it didn't, I didn't, at that point, it didn't matter if it worked for anybody else. It really worked for me, and I was so pleased with it. So This time, when I was... Um... After I finished Gravity, I Gravity was kind of intense. And the thing is, is when I when I have plotted Gravity, the first scene that popped into my head is the scene where Harry claims the wards, where he's standing on that ward stone, um, claiming the wards, and that's where I wanted to get. That was my goal, and so I plotted towards that goal, and um. It's a very it's a very quick pace and it's very intense um, as far as pace goes and you know the intensity of their intimacy and their relationship and so when I went in to write flight I I wanted to write something quiet and subdued 
and intimate. And it uh, it was just, I wanted something very different. And so when someone commented on my tone, how, you know, the difference in the tone and how much they liked it, I was like, yay, they noticed. <laughs> and it was great. It was great. I didn't have to tell them they noticed. Yeah, that's probably the, the coolest thing in terms of, you know, I love all my feedback, but when somebody really gets something that you have worked on that's subtle or um, or just like a theme or something, or somebody really likes the thing that you like, um, it it's really just really, it's really gratifying. It's a really cool feeling. Um, when someone picks up on the one thing or the, the, you know, the one little tiny line or something that was your favorite part of an entire story. It's like, yes, you were there with me. You got me. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's nice. I really enjoy that part. And, um, but, you know, for me, uh, plotting is, um, a lot of writers say that they don't plot. Or they're afraid to overplot because it will ruin um, their inspiration for the story. And I do have a point of overplotting. I do have that point. And when I reach it, it's like a saturation. And I could put the product aside for you know six months to a year and then come back to it and be perfectly okay. I can kind of tone that saturation down. But for me, um, plotting is such an organic and um, integral part of my process that it takes a lot for me to get overplotted. I, I can get to it. I mean, I had this one story that I really wanted to write, but it was at a point in my life when I was, I was working like mad. Um, I was working uh, 14, 16 hour days, six days a week. And it was just, I had no time to write. There there was nothing. There was, it was, it was sleep, eat, work. And um, there was lots of, a lot of family drama and it's just writing was just, there's no place for it. And I, probably for four months or so, this story, this story that I really wanted to write was the thing in my head. And I, t- I told that in while sitting in meetings and driving in the car and in the shower, I moved through that story multiple iterations in my head, like a movie. And when I finally mm-hmm. had time to sit down and write, the last thing I wanted to work on was that story. I'm like, I'm done. Doesn't that <laughs> suck? That sucks so much, right? Been there, done was that. Was it original or fandom? It was original. It was original. Huh. Look what her work like, robbed us of, guys. We, we were robbed. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I've had a couple of fandom projects where I've, I've, you know, kind of teased myself and with teased myself with them mentally too much. And I think that's the line for me is I need to stick with like plotting and not like like daydreaming them and vivid technical in my head because when I move through them with that level of detail in my in, in imagination, then I'm done. And I'm just like, hey, I've seen this movie. <laughs> I can move on. <laughs> done. I do know. I do know a couple people who plot so intricately. Uh, somebody, I think Azure mentioned something up above about writing in a nonlinear, nonlinear way. And this lady, I don't want to say I was in my late twenties. That um, she had, she the amount of the amount of pages she would have, and she always plotted on paper. 
it was if she would even draw a little 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 she'd have like a every, each like either card or a half sheet or something for every scene and she would have it all laid out that, it was like it, scene it really framing? was like a real story that, yeah it really was like, like a scene, scene, framing? scene framing or, yeah but she would also but it was really was like a true storyboard like a movie board you know and um she would she would note who all was in the scene and the setting and and, and I think she had written some scripts and when she was younger and I, I never really dug into it but there was something very movie development about her process and by the time she got done plotting she could then cherry pick and this and she would do this this is the way she wrote because it was the only way she could get through the writing um, she would cherry pick which scenes were the most interesting to her. And write scenes from the highest interest to the lowest interest, basically, and then knit them together. And all that transitional work and background and exposition and anything extraneous, that's what she called extraneous, that was needed to stitch all those interesting scenes together is the last thing she did. And then her first edit of that was was making sure she didn't have continuity and tone problems and all of this kind of stuff. And I was just like, that seems like a lot of work. <laughs> a lot of Let me work. ask you this. Um, is she published? She only I'm not going to delve too deep. I know of. Uh, sci-fi or fantasy? It's kind of a fantasy bent to her work. Not yes. quite fantasy. It's a little bit more historical with a... Um, it's sort of historical like, with a fantasy slant to it. Like Outlander? Yeah. I think kind of like Roman legions with a little bit of magic to it kind of thing. I can't imagine a romance writer doing something like that. That has to be some kind of high fantasy or um, science fiction writer. I mean, that's just the kind of thing I could see them doing. I mean, her stories had, would have really graphic sex in them, but she was not definitely not romance focused. She was, it was definitely a um, the 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 sex and relationship was not the point of her stories. But yeah, she I think she and she would do she'd do these deep dives. I think the last time I talked to her, she was doing some deep dive into Egypt, Egyptian lore and ancient Egypt, and was doing something set in ancient Egypt. I was like, I I'd seen her her plotting and her plotting and research process before. And I mean, her, her research process, she'd come home from the library with, you know, as many books as they would let her leave with on her culture of choice, whatever historical thing she was researching. And uh, I think the only thing I ever saw her researching that was contemporary was the secret service. And I kind of went, I don't want to know. <laughs> right. Know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to know. I don't, know, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I saw nothing. But no, you know, I knew, um, uh, knew, I know a writer who's a sci-fi writer who is just as detail-oriented as that. There's something really interesting about a person like that. If they have money to travel, they can legitimately claim. She could go to Egypt and say, yes, I was doing it for research. Here is the book. Here are all my notes, Mr. IRS agent. Yes, I did need a twenty thousand dollar write off for work. <laughs> yeah, she could she could make it literally even if there's no book, she could say, Yeah, I I that story about, you know, Serbia it just didn't work out. <laughs> but I went here's all my notes. So. Here's all my notes and all my pictures and all my research. 
because you know someone like that that's one of the things everywhere I ever went with her we everything was you know what do you think and looking stuff up and her making notes about something she wanted to research and I don't know how much of the things we saw that she went back and researched but it's interesting to be around somebody who takes that look on thing that everything for her was fodder for her to write something with and she had two monster things I know at some point got published but I don't know what all else she, how many projects, I mean, I saw her over the course of the time I knew her probably work on six or seven projects. I don't know what all, to her, the research, I think was, the research and the planning, I think she enjoyed as much as anything else. So she probably wrote one book for every 10 projects she researched would be my guess. And again, if that's what makes her happy, that is perfectly okay. If you want to write the same book for 10 years and it makes you happy, you go, you do you, boo. You write that book for 10 years and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. I personally don't find that idea very rewarding, but if you do, you don't let anybody, including me, tell you what to do with yourself. That's right. I, I know she got a lot of writing in there, but just not everything resulted in a finished story. And she was okay with that. I wouldn't, I would think I would find that unfulfilling, but it, it was, wasn't unfulfilling for her. Um, I know her, her education background was in, was in, I believe, I want to say it was physics, but I could be wrong about that. And she'd done research when she was right out of college and then somehow moved into the industry where I met her. But, you know, I think I think that she just had just really enjoyed kind of deep diving in and researching things, and the writing was almost incidental. Did I miss any questions in the chat room? <laughs> there was some linear stuff. Um, hybrid panting. Okay, here's um I'm yeah. gonna just call you Lisa. Is that okay? Um I have a couple of massive verses with multiple stories. I tend to write up with a lot of I I tend to end up with a lot of scraps of outtakes and have to stop and figure out all the background that doesn't fit in the action proper but who, where, and what the fuck going on in the background? Do you ever stop and write scraps that are story adjacent just to work out where the holdup is in a short, in, when a story stalls? I do that even when it doesn't stall. Um, if I need to... Hmm, sometimes if I'm skipping, doing a big time skip, if I really want it in my head how a scene went down between two characters that I'm going to reference later, it's not uncommon for me to write that scene and leave it out of the story. Um, just so that I can have it rock solid in my head how how that went. And I don't mind leaving it out, you know. I think it, you know, it, but especially if it doesn't move the story forward, I'm usually not particularly tempted to put it in. Unless it just has got just like one of those like visceral things that just kind of makes you tingly in it. Then sometimes I'll put it in even if it doesn't move the story forward. But um, 
I worked. I did one story once where I think I was really unhappy with the end. I plotted it to the ending that I had plotted, and that's what I published. But it was a sad ending, and it was so sad that I needed to make myself feel better. And I wrote an alternate ending just for me. And I think that alternate ending was like thirty k, and no one but me ever saw that. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably cruel, but I made myself feel better. <laughs> I uh, I actually um, have a couple of examples of this up on my website. Um, if you've read um, Sentinels of Atlantis, there is a there is an interlude where Anne um, Teldy meets her guide Allison Porter. Um, I wrote that before um, I wrote them in a scene just to get an idea of what Anne would be like as a sentinel. Um, Because I knew I was going to be using her uh, on and off in the Earth scenes. And so I wanted a really good grasp on who she'd be as a sentinel. Because I've written Anne Teldy a lot in a a variety of, you know, back scenes. And I wanted, um, but she's a little bit different every time I write her. Um, uh, whether she's got, you know, a a, a vicious sense of humor or, or whatever. But I wanted to write her um, kind of alpha and uh, very, uh, but vulnerable. And so I needed to figure out what her bonding was like, what happened when she saw um, Allison and all those men and why a woman who had a previously identified as straight and that's how I saw her as someone who'd never actually been with a woman before um, picking a female guide based on pure instinct um, and, no- and nothing else. Um, that she didn't let any of her um, internal um, experience or motivations or bias get in the way of um, her true match, her guide. Um, so I wrote that scene and I kept it for a while and then I put it up on um, my site as an interlude. And I did the same thing um, with Rodney and Gerard um, in Ties That Bind. Um, That wasn't a scene I ever really planned to share with anybody uh, because there's a a bittersweet element to Rodney's submission in that scene because you know know going into it, if you've read the series, that Rodney isn't going to stay and Gerard isn't going to ask. But there's this lovely intimacy between them. And so, yeah, but those are two examples of scenes that I wrote adjacent to series that uh, ended up on my site when that really wasn't their purpose. <clears throat> and like, and, and, and that at the end of that, I remember thinking at the time, well, I go, well, I ship it. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Someone asked me if I'd ever write Rodney's training, and the answer is no, because like I said, it's just very bittersweet. Those that that six months that he spends with Gerard and I would never. I like to write stories that end happy and beautiful, and that would be neither. Because in a way, Gerard broke Rodney's heart when when he let him go after he marked him. When when he said, "I have this collar for you, but I don't want you to take it. You're welcome in my life and in my household, and I and I I offer you this in all sincerity, but." I don't think you'll be happy with me. And he wouldn't have been. Yeah. 
So it's very bittersweet, and I I I don't like to hurt myself that way. I don't like to hurt my own feelings. <laughs> just saying. Uh, that's that's why I had to have that alternate ending just for myself because I did hurt my own feelings with this one story, and I, I had to I had to set that to rights. What do I do when a story truly stalls? I start something new, which is how I ended up with. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> A lot of works in progress. I I will shelve something that's not working. I have no problem. Um, I used to have more of a problem doing it, um, but now I just like okay, this isn't working. And sometimes I think something. You know, we've talked. I've talked. I know I've mentioned it on another podcast. Sometimes I think something was awful, and I go back and read it, and I'm like, that's really good. <laughs> what was wrong with me when I decided this was awful? Um, or I will think something is I don't know the best thing since sliced bread, and I go back to read it to work on it and I go what the hell was I thinking (laughs) this is just awful um so I mean sometimes you just don't have really great perspective but you know I think if you're stuck I mean uh, and you want to write it depends on what you want to do if you really want to solve the problem with this story and you're stuck Sometimes it helps to get outside of yourself and get some somebody else's perspective. Um, but if you just want to really write, if you only want to be writing, don't beat your head against the wall with something that has given you fit. Write something else. I have 128 works in progress, and that equals 2,067,000 words. I would guess I'm about somewhere around half of that. I think I, I sort of, I got, I started counting one day, but I started getting bored. And I made a list. But I also made a, a list of my Ugh. complete. Yeah, it's in my Excel spreadsheet because I have two million six hundred sixty-four thousand published words of fan fiction on my site. That's not including things on um, Wild Hair or RT. I like Excel. It is very useful. It keeps me organized. I used to plot in Excel. Until one of my friends saw it in the writing room. She said, honey, what are you doing? I said, this is my plot. She says, this is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) This is an Excel, this is an Excel spreadsheet with a database. What, what, why do you have pie graphs? I said, I need them. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I have pie graphs. Um, and charts. And, and she told me I was ridiculous. And so I gradually moved over to OneNote and uh, Microsoft Word for, um, for plotting. But I, yeah, I used to plot in Excel. Um, it's very handy to do like um uh family trees and stuff in Excel. Very useful. Just saying. I it would it would be it would be a lot of work to like go back through all my works in progress and put them into Excel. I think if I were to start writing now, I might start keeping track of things and also make notes because sometimes I go back to stories that I didn't take very good notes on. Like I have just a rough outline of the plot and I go I have no idea where I was going with this, <laughs> but um, 
I know my work in progress folder. My, well, no, actually, my whole writing folder. If I just my work in progress folder, I just I clicked on the wrong folder. <laughs> well, I have our works in progress separated by fandom, and in some cases, like with the Harry Potter, separated by trope. <laughs> I have like um, it says there like um, a little almost. Almost. Oh, come on. It's still counting. Stop that. It's got like about 500. There's about 500 individual files in my work in progress folder. That doesn't mean anything. So um, there's that could be research pages and photos, images. No, I keep photos elsewhere. I tend to not keep pictures with, which is crazy because then I'm like, where did I put the pictures for this? I don't know. I keep um, in each folder for a story. I'll have a document, a work folder, and an image folder. And the image folder will have banners, any art that I've received for it, um, any images I've downloaded for characters, and all that stuff. And then I'll have, in my work folder, will have the different versions of my story. Um, I keep individual betas, like I'll have one beta named Lady Holder, one beta named Jilly, you know, or whatever. Um, and then I'll have uh, my original draft, and then I'll have my final and my final is outside in the main folder. And then everything else is in the work folder or in the image folder. And then I have, also in my work folder, I'll have my, my plot document and any notes. And sometimes I'll have um, a scanned PDF of uh, notes that I took in, um, on on paper. Yeah, I always keep my images separate. Um it's just so that when I'm trying to hunt for a file, I'm only having to look through one master folder. Um, I think it's because I, I don't know, I just kept images separate from, like I said, sometimes it's a little bit of a... Of a I have no idea what a piper means, lady holder. Your husband's a bad influence on your vocabulary. Um, what's a piker? Well, I thought it had something to do with gambling, but what the, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I don't understand. I don't understand the reference based upon what I thought it meant. And my mouse is being really cunty. Stop that. But no, I recently made my work in progress tab on my um, Excel spreadsheet because I was bored and I couldn't think of anything else to do. And um, I'm never, I'm never that bored. I was that bored. <laughs> I don't, maybe I should say I don't ever want to be that bored. <laughs> Lord. Also, because I think I think also I wouldn't necessarily want to open up all those files and check them out. There's some stuff I'm probably better off forgetting. I do that all the time, anyway. So it wasn't that much of a big deal. I did open them all up, and I read some of them, and I um. I did word count. Oh, 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 you know, word does the word count, and then I wrote down the word count. Um, oh, my! I typed it into my Excel spreadsheet. And then, you know, if I was in that folder, I organized some stuff. If I had some stuff outside the folders, and you know, you know, because in my writing folder for Kira, hold on, properties. I have 1,420 files in 121 folders. 
So, but yeah, so I, I find organization makes me feel better. It makes me more creative. It makes me, um, and also this is, this is a function of living in a, in a first world, um, country. Um, I have found over the last, say, um, five years that I have a difficult time writing if I don't have internet. Because if I need to look something up, I, I not being like, able I need to, to look do it up it now. Yeah. Will throw me completely off my game. Yeah. Usually when I'm writing, I have multiple um, date tabs alone. Just just date tabs, right? And um, I can get really stuck over not knowing not being able to check where I am. Because when I'm writing, I'll, I'll build a rough timeline before I start the story to figure out, you know, when I'm starting and, like, you know, if I'm doing fan fiction, like what season, you know, what season of the show I'm in and what the episode dates were. And I'll have all that done in advance. But when it comes to, like, okay, what day is this next scene going to be on? Well, okay, I need to, the last scene was on a Thursday. And, you know, that, I want to be sure I'm not doing something improbable. Like, you know, I don't know. Having you know government offices open on a Sunday, um, or like dropping a baby thing. off the first week of November during the coldest winter in British history, right? <laughs> in exactly. Modern on a night where it was freezing rain. Exactly. I mean, I don't want to. I mean, I had um, in one story, I had inadvertently written um, um, with my date, because I screwed up the date, I had written um, serious meeting with Remus during the full moon. And I was like, no, 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 no. I and always that's have to know when the, first, the, 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 the full moons are during Harry Potter, but it's very important when you're yeah. working with Remus to know when that shit's going so, down. And that's why I have, and I actually, you know, I go to timeanddate.com, and I'll have multiple months up for the months that I'm working on in the story, and I'll set it to the right country so I can see what the holidays were during in that country during that time period. And it's just, if I don't have the Internet, I'm like, um, ugh. I've, sometimes I can get past it, like, okay, I'll come fill in that detail later. But sometimes I'm just in a, I'm just, a little bit more OCD than other times, and I really have to be, I have to get those details then. I don't want to fill in them later. I, I, I don't like leaving the blanks. So It's, it's very um, uncomfortable. I have, so we had a different we had a new question about um, writing a scene from a different point of view because it's not working from a specific character's point of view. Does that affect the plotting? Um. I have changed point of view to make a scene more effective, provided it's not throwing in an extraneous point of view. Um, some fandoms are notorious for everybody's got a point of view, and it's freaking annoying because not everybody needs a point of view in the story. And I mean, I don't mean all. I don't mean head hopping. I mean like covering every character's reaction in their own point of view to a certain set of events. It's just like no. Uh, it's a, you know, actually, point of view is really critical to how effective the scene is. So if a scene isn't working, one of the things that I think is always worth considering is, are you in the right point of view for that scene? Um, 
does that affect the plotting? I'm trying to think of a reason why it would affect the For plotting. me, I changed the POV because sometimes you'll go into a scene and the motivations for the event aren't, like, for the most part, most people tell a story from one character's point of view, and then there will be, like, two or three, depending on the author, adjacent point of views to go with it. Like, you know, when I wrote um, uh, Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, there's a variety of point of views because it's told in episode format, and there are scenes where neither Harry nor Hermione are actually in the scene. So it makes sense that there would be scenes where it's not in their point of view, right? Um, right. But for, for me, I only change the point of view when it serves my plot. Because character motivations are important. And if there's a scene being told where another character's motivations are more important for the plot than your main character, or your, you know, your it needs to be in their point of view so that your so that your reader can connect with those motivations. So that's why I change point of view um, as I move through a plot document as to how it serves my plot best. It's never about um, the structure of a scene because I, I taught myself really early on to to strip down that kind of technique when it comes to a character. I can put any character's point of view in a scene. That is, But for me, the important part is making it work for my plot. So that's why I would change. Okay. I think sometimes, I think sometimes we kind of have, we say things, I wonder sometimes if we say things in a slightly different way, but it's kind of effectively the same thing. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times I determine point of view based upon a couple, usually what's more interesting um, and that seems may sound a little bit weird, but um, I was writing a scene. Yeah, I was writing a scene. I can't remember what story it was for, but the character something something bad had happened. I guess bad had happened. So, well, some characters were laying something something bad that had happened, uh, but it's something that had happened to them a while ago. You know, so they they had no emotional real reaction to the whole thing. And the scene was getting really bogged down getting the other character's perspective on this event because the only way really to get it was for the main character to infer it from their reactions or for the other character to keep interrupting with verbal, um, oh, my God, or, how to, you know, whatever. And I was finding that really tedious. So I I rewrote the scene in the other character's point of view where I could use their reaction as descriptive beats instead of dialogue tags. and get, Because that served your plot. Yeah, and so it, ser- it also served to allow me to cut down on dialogue tags for starters because I was able to use those, you know, because beats can be used to identify the speaker just as much as a tag can. So I was able to, you know, actually make the scene a lot more streamlined and efficient and cut out all of their reactions. And their point of view was the more interesting one because their reaction was what was interesting in that scene. It wasn't um, the information itself because the audience already knew it, most of it. So I love kind of, I want to point out, I have a thing. I have an example and it's in Jilly's story. Um, uh, stick around. There's a scene mm-hmm. where Tony meets the bots, and he asks you 
if you as a boy or a girl. And this scene is told from Tony's point of view, and he's delivered a shock when he's told by Jarvis that all three of the bots have basically identified and that Dummy is non-binary. And you um, is a girl. She's most definitely a girl. And Tony's utterly shocked. Well, that scene told from Tony's, from, from Dom's point of view, would have had zero impact for me as a reader. But because it was told from Tony's point of view, and he's learned something new about something he built, he built her, and she she developed a personality and a gender, and he is floored, and he's so startled that this man has come into his life and and impacted both himself and his work in such a unique and interesting way because no one had ever asked that before. And he hadn't even asked her um, if she was a boy or a girl. And it, 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 was, it was very powerful, but it would have been flat. less powerful. To it, it would have been flat from Dom's point of view. So in telling yeah. it in Tony's point of view, you further she she furthered her plot and her characterization and Tony. But if it had just been from Dom's point of view, it, it would have taken away Tony's um, characterization development. Does that make yeah. sense? I'm just yeah. asking your work like like you aren't even sitting here. <laughs> but that's what pops <laughs> in my head immediately when you, when you're talking about that about how it, you know the characterization and how it serves. That's what immediately popped into my head. So. And see, the thing in that story, that's another example of, of, like, if I had known that scene needed to happen in Tony's point of view, but if I had tried to write it from Dom's point of view, because I'm honestly more comfortable in Dom's point of view, but if I tried to write it, it would have, because he's a sentinel, he would have been able to infer a lot more about Tony's reactions than and, than the average person. But that's like getting information about Tony's reaction secondhand. And it it wasn't it wouldn't it wouldn't work as well, so, and it also would be more it would, it would take more words to convey the same thing and be less effective. So sometimes you go into a scene knowing this is going to be rock solid, powerful from this character's point of view, and sometimes you go into it and you think you know what point of view and it's not working, and you go, why is this so flat, or why is this just, just why is it like I'm eking this out? as opposed to it just flowing. And sometimes that really is point of view. Sometimes you need that reaction. You need to, you need to figure out which character is having a moment <laughs> and be in their point of view because observing a moment is not, is not usually as impactful as, as, as having a moment. But, I mean, that, there's, there's no hard, it's, you know, there's always corner cases where that's not true. And, of course, there are times when you're writing in a single point of view um, but single point of view stories just have a very different vibe in them, vibe to them. So, um, it should be very deep, very will, intimate when you're in a single POV. Um, your um, your reader should almost anticipate your character's words and actions if you've really developed a strong connection between you and the reader and the character. Um, they're going to move with your character. They're going to feel with your character. They're going to get angry with your character. You know, and that's when you know you've really done your job as a writer. Yeah, and to and to insert a new point of view for even one scene in a story like that can be so jarring. So you have to kind of balance the POV thing because 
if you if you're all in one POV except for one scene, there better be a, a compelling reason I'm having a hard time thinking of to to do that because if you've got a novel length story in a single point of view except for a thousand words, I think if your POV character isn't in a coma, you've got some explaining to do. I did that, sort of did that. I didn't exactly do that, but I did introduce a POV at the end of a story once, but it was, I did it on purpose. It wasn't like it was an accident, um, which was an imperfect. Um, I had, it was, the story was probably a little bit more than, probably not quite two thirds, a little bit more than half in Tony's point of view. And, uh, you know, the other was in Derek's point of view. So it was a little kind of alternating, but not, not, um, not it wasn't completely balanced. It was a bit more Tony than Derek. Um, and then I threw in a new point of view in the in the epilogue, which was to put um, David Rossi in and see. And it was because I wanted to pull back. The epilogue was already pulling back, but I wanted to pull back further and get a a view of their an objective view of their relationship and how they had progressed and what their life was like. And the easiest way to pull back was to insert. A, a different point of view is to get a, a further back perspective, a more balanced perspective about them and not really get into um, what it would, what telling that from either one of the main characters points of view. So that was, a, that was something I hadn't done before was change, you know, throw in a brand new point of view in an epilogue, but it was something I wanted to try in that story. And I was pleased with how it came out with David coming in at the end. Um, but just right in the middle of a story that's, you know, 50, 60, 100,000 words. You just have this one scene or something that's in a different point of view. Um, again, unless the, unless the main character's in a coma, I mean, it's just, it, it's odd. It's jarring when you're in a really intimate point of view. To... I had a POV decision to make in Phoenix. When Hermione is kidnapped during the second task in Phoenix, and Phoenix is available on Wild Hair Project, it's not complete, but it is over there. Um and that's actually new material that I added after I, I put it on Wild Hair. I added some more content to it from the original sneak peek. Um, I told that entire sequence from Harry's point of view. Um, there's some urgency there, but not a lot, because the reader knows that, they, that, they are, that they're going to survive and because they've met their kids. You know, the, they met their kids in the time event um, in, the, in the room of requirements. So they know that Harry and Hermione are going to survive this. Um, but I told it in Harry's point of view because I needed to have that scene with Dumbledore. Um, there's two scenes with Dumbledore that I thought were really important that they come from Harry's point of view. Um, but it got tricky after they returned to Hogwarts and Harry has to, he offers her Hermione a copy of the prophecy and she refuses. She doesn't think she can protect it. She, she says, no, I, I can't. Um, and they're talking about um, what happened and the consequences and how she doesn't always assign consequences to her actions or her knowledge. And eventually, it, in the roundabout conversation, Harry makes Thaddeus explain to Hermione how a Death Eater is marked. And it is a very horrific process. Um, and she's standing there in the room of requirement when Thaddeus tells her this. And she makes a leap, an intellectual and emotional leap, 
to the fact that Dumbledore allowed Severus Snape to be in Hogwarts all those years, knowing what he did to become a Death Eater. And she's horrified that he's let this man be around her and other little girls just like her, Muggleborns and Half-Bloods, when she knows that in order to get that mark on his arm, he had to kill one. There was extra. I don't want to trigger anybody, but it was pretty horrible. And she feels so betrayed. And so it was really difficult not, not to switch to her point of view, but it would have been really awkward to have that whole scene building up to that moment in Harry's point of view, which I thought was really important when it comes to the prophecy and his reaction to her saying, no, she doesn't want to know what it is because she can't protect it. Um, and then the scene outside Malfoy Manor where Harry made Dumbledore promise that he would reveal to Thaddeus um, what he's been hiding, which is basically the the whole Horcrux conversation. Um, that all had to be in Harry's point of view. And then I got to that moment, and I, instinctually, because I identify very much with Hermione, uh, being female, um, I wanted to switch to her point of view. But from a plot perspective, it simply would have been jarring to move from in just to do that switch for like those last. It had been basically three paragraphs into that scene, so it would have been jarring for the reader to switch point of view. So I had to figure out a way to 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 really portray her horror and her sense of betrayal through Harry. And it was difficult. Um, but I think that I did accomplish it. But um, that POV choice was plot, but making it serve my character was a little more difficult than normal. So um, to dissect my own work since I did it, since I did it to Jilly's. <laughs> it's, it's that's the difficult thing is that sometimes you're like, this is the character's reaction I really want, but sometimes it it doesn't serve the plot to switch. Um, or it would have been vanity. Just, it would have been a vanity head hop to do that, and I just chose not to. So it did make the writing a little bit more difficult. And I, but I, but I do hope that I accomplished her horror and her betrayal that she feels knowing what Dumbledore has allowed to be around her. And sometimes there are times, not, not necessarily in this case, but there are times when sometimes you actually, at least this is my approach. Sometimes if something is really awful, I'll actually try to go to a POV that's a little bit removed. Um, Sometimes for my own sanity, Um, it depends on what the, what the scene's about. But you know, it's like, but I made I made a decision to write a Leomoto. Um, initially, I had planned um, more points of view than I had. But and then and then when I got into it, when I got into writing, I realized that I was going to go from a big story to a story I I would have no control over on the size. It just if I started introducing more points of view. Um, that if I didn't, and I actually, I think I, I think it, I posted the first or second part. It was really early on, and then I had to take a break um, and go back and kind of replot and refocus the story because I had this sudden sense that I was looking at like a half a million words, and I was like, no, I gotta, I gotta narrow the focus of this plot down, and I need to stay in Severus's point of view until the point where it no longer makes sense. 
And so, and then I figured out where that point would be that it no longer made sense for it to be so focused on him. And then I would, and, and, and it start, start another story, like start, you know, do a sequel where I started doing other points of view. But if I had, if I had done those initial events where he's shaking up things in the wizarding world and added in other points of view to get other reactions and stuff, it would have gone from being big to being epic and I'd had like three epics on my hands and I was, I, it was just something I just didn't even want to get into. And then ultimately I, I made the decision ultimately initially to protect my mental health. <laughs> but I feel like in the end it was a better decision than letting it kind of be all over the place. One of the reasons why I tell Sentinels of Atlantis episode format is that after I wrote The Gathering, which is a novella, um, I thought about how I wanted to structure, because um, I had um, actually, I was going to write it very similar to the way I did what, my, what might have been, which is a series of novellas um, or novels, depending on the content, because that, that ranges, um, the, the, the pace of that series is very deliberate, but it um, I wrote bigger pieces to kind of slow down the overall arc when it comes to what might have been, and then shorter pieces to pick up the the pace and the angst. Um, but um, all that is was on purpose. But when I got ready to do Sentinels of Atlantis, I was like, you know what? That that was the Sentinels of Atlantis arc is is huge. It is it is very very big, and I I did not want to try to spread that out over a series of novels because, or novellas, because it would have um, been, it would have been very difficult to control the pace. But when I, I thought, you know what, I'll just do it like a TV series. I'll make my own TV series. <laughs> yeah. And then it was like, it was like, Oh, that's really freeing because it allowed me to, to build pace both inside the episode and out across the whole season. So, the, and I've talked about it before, how each episode has a beginning, a middle, and an end, but the whole season has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it basically, the last three episodes are falling action for the season. Four, maybe, maybe four episodes. I have to look at it. Really? Four? Um, I would have thought, I would have thought only two. I have to, let me, let me go look. Because originally when I, when I plotted it, it website. was it was it was three, maybe four. But um, but like we said earlier, nothing survives um, engagement with the enemy or the keyboard. And what's really funny is sometimes I remember my notes more than I do what I actually wrote. But I was reading a uh, study about that, and it said people, uh, and they've proven that you learn more from writing than you do from typing. So it's just I tend to plot on paper. It makes sense that I might remember more. Um, Yeah. So. Yeah, there are plot there there are plots that I have done or timelines and plots and stuff that I did wrote out on paper, and a lot of usually I get those things. I don't have space to keep a bunch of old notebooks, keep a ton of notebooks. So usually I get that stuff out of notebooks and then shred the originals, um, either by scanning. Scanning's my, not my preferred. Usually I type them up, but sometimes I do. With it was like something something that's drawn out. I will 
Um, but um, there's a couple that I just never bothered with, and they're the ones I remember the best, the ones that I didn't do any of it online, didn't do any of it typed. I remember those plot notes really, really well. Like, oh yeah, I remember that. I don't need to. I don't need to. I don't need to transcribe that. I remember it just fine. <laughs> okay, my uh, my season climax for Sentinels of Atlantis is the Queen. That's episode seventeen, and then we have eighteen, nineteen, and twenty, um, which is basically the falling action. And, the, and in the Queen, Miko um, finishes coming online. She beats the queen to death with her brain. And David Shepard comes online on Earth. And that is a super big plot point for season two. <laughs> yeah. I would guess. So, I, yeah. That is a lot of work. I would never recommend that you pants that. That'd be a very frustrating experience. But if you, but if you want to do that, you do you. I, I look forward to seeing what you accomplish. Because <laughs> plotting it was a fucking nightmare. Here I was I'm I was poking around at Sentinels Sentinels of Atlanta poke poke poke. <laughs> <laughs> Don't poke my stuff. Um, I can't help it. But yeah, poke. but yeah, the Queen was my um, how quickly do you plot versus actual writing time? Um, it depends on the project uh, because I have been known to to stop. In the middle of a project and replot. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the middle. <laughs> and both my. I mean, oh, I was gonna say that my. No... Go ahead. <laughs> you go ahead. <laughs> I will be quiet. I think we're getting some latency. I don't know. That's probably me. I've got a funky headset on, but um, I was notable this try for having to stop after the first post on both stories and replot. <laughs> <laughs> Usually I get a little a little further before I realize I've screwed up. Uh quickly view plot versus actual writing time. I don't um I've had a couple of stories that had an epic amount of plotting. Slither I think I did more plotting for Slytherin Black than anything I've ever written. Um I would guess that I spent the hours and, and I found out that I had spent um, 40 or 50 hours in just the plotting phase alone. I wouldn't be surprised on that story. And I usually don't like to spend that much time plotting, but when I compare it to the writing, how, how long it, it was probably going to take me to get to the end of the whole thing. Um, and I, I actually didn't have to do a whole lot of that's one and that's one though that I had I didn't have to do a whole lot of replotting. There's just some there were some plot decisions that I decided to make. It could go this way or it could go this way. I had some divergence points. I could go one of a different ways with a couple things and I decided to wait till I got there to make a final decision. Um, I actually don't like putting that much time into plotting because I prefer to, you know, right now I mean some people 
the people who are big research heavy and plot heavy, you know, on their plotting heavy, not plot heavy, you know, they do like to do a lot of upfront work would be horrified that I only spent 40 or 50 hours prepping to write something. Um, That feels to me like a lot. So um, if I get more bogged down than that in plotting, uh, I'm going to lose interest usually. Because I want to write. I don't want to just sit here and make notes on what we mean by plotting. Because there have been times when I've gotten in research spirals. If I, if I, if I include research spirals that I've gotten into on stories, I, I wouldn't even know how to articulate in some cases how much. I think I lost a day doing nothing but researching the Uniform Code of Military Justice. I mean. <laughs> well, in your defense, that's very complicated. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I didn't get much out of it. Okay, my quantum bang project. Um, I spent 107 hours uh, building the document, and I don't leave documents open when I'm not actually using them. That because that that's how you lose shit. So that isn't it just sitting here opening my computer and me walking off. That's me actively working in the document 107 hours. Um, shit. The story document for my quantum bang is teen pages, 7,144 words. That does not include the time I spent reading timelines and wikis and downloading beautiful pictures. (laughs) So I probably spent 110, 115 hours building my quantum bang. And my word goal is 100,000 words. Um, I can write anywhere from 7,000 to 15,000 words a day. Um, But that's not common. So I think I'll probably spend between 250 and 300 hours writing it. Yeah. Is that unreasonable? No. I I think you spend more time... um, Working in, well, it's a little bit, I never actually tried, I hadn't looked at the hours, uh, how many hours a plot document was open. Um, well, it's very easy for me since I do close them when I'm not using them. So I don't have to think about how many hours it might have sat open on my computer when I wasn't paying attention. Um, yeah. I, I don't do I've that. Had, I've had that's, documents. That's how you do shit, you know. Yeah, I've had documents. Once you get to have a document that you that had been saved but was just sitting open become corrupted by virtue of the fact that it was open when your computer crashed. Um, yeah, you don't do that anymore. Um, yeah, yeah, don't. Okay, so I have worked on Small Magic. That's my Harry Potter um, Hobbit crossover. 741 hours. A year old as of the 1st of the 6th of July. It's a year old. So 741 hours in a year. Um, And it is 132,000 words. So divided by, that's basically 30 30 days, 24 hours a day. on that one story. So Yeah. And that doesn't count, you know, um 
obviously since it's not finished, it doesn't count beta or um, the the second draft. Um, so so yeah. Am I ridiculous? I think I'm ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to find if I can find something that has a reasonable. I just never looked at that those particular those kind of statistics. I don't even know where are you finding that information. How long you've been in that document? Um, okay, if you click on a document. Okay, and then you click on File. Uh-huh. It'll tell you um, total editing time. It, over on Properties on the right-hand side, it'll have size, pages, number of words, number of minutes, date created, date modified. All of mine say zero. <laughs> You could have your settings set up where it's clearing out all of your um, document properties. Yeah, they all all of mine say zero. Zero, 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 zero. Editing time zero. So it's probably something in my settings that's there. But no, I don't think that the time doesn't doesn't seem unreasonable. Um because I think that um, I write a little slower than you, so my guess would be, oh, yeah, if I haven't, yeah, if I hadn't spent, already spent at least 250 hours writing on Southern Black, I would be surprised. Okay. Um, Just, the the first book, uh, The Legacy, where James Potter stays in um, – leaves Britain with Harry instead of staying. Um, 415 hours on the original draft. And that is 61K. That's a pretty short. I think that, yeah, you definitely have probably spent between three and 400 hours yeah. on Slytherin Black. Yeah, yeah it's... Um, yeah. And with that one, it had such a long research phase um, and, and for me, long plotting phase because there's so many details I was trying to get right. And I had dozens, I mean, dozens of wiki pages open up, checking details, making sure I had information. It's, a lot of it is stuff that never comes into the story. And then just the, just the rough draft writing time has been really long. If I, by the time I get under editing, it, if if I get by the time I get done, if it was a totally, if it was a thousand hour plus project, I wouldn't be surprised. It's no, not more me neither. Depending upon how out of control things get, but yeah, all of my documents say zero. It's got to be a setting, or it could just be because I'm on a Mac and Microsoft doesn't isn't terribly invested in making sure the word on a Mac actually works completely right properly. <laughs> right, I agree. Yeah. Okay, it adds up quick, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. But I would say that I um, plot a third of what I actually write. That's not, that's not what I mean. I plot, like, 
writing time versus plotting time, about a third of that. So if I spent 30 hours total writing that, I probably spent 10 hours total researching plotting. Yeah, I would guess that most of my projects, it's 10, 10%, 10 to 15% plotting time. Um, Harry Potter, I would spend more. I would guess 20, 20, 25% yeah, gotta, more, more time. And you got to do Harry Potter world building. Longer. You got to figure out yeah. what crap you're going to leave out, who you're going to bash. <laughs> bash who you're not going to bash. <laughs> How many ways can Ron Weasley die? A lot. I mean, I just, everybody, every author clearly is very different in their threshold between how much time they plot versus, um, right? Um, like I said, I have a friend, I, w- I would guess, that her plotting time is 10x more than her writing time. Easily. Easily. Because I count the research phase as part of plotting. Now, if that's, that, that's, that's crazy I, cake. Oh, yeah. If, yeah if, I, if I add research, I'm probably closer to the 20% because some, you know, everything is part of the plot. Um, I can spend sometimes more time building the timeline than I do on the actual plot points because sometimes the timeline, you know, um, for the For You series, I probably spent, if I didn't spend 50 hours on the timeline alone, I would be surprised because <laughs> I had to, I had to research. It is. Well, I was researching, you know, when events occurred around 9-11, what dates they occurred on. I even researched when Congress was in session um, in those years. And it, it just, it was so much just, you know, you know, nitpicky detail that I wanted to get down ahead of time that and that's one of the rare cases where it took me longer to research for the series than it did to write the first episode. Both um, are very important because, considering who your characters are. It makes total yeah. sense that you would invest that much time in that because I would have had to too. If you're going to write that, you need to know where he is, what he's doing, um, what he's doing when Tony's working on this case. Um, if he's going to be at home or if he's going to be in session. Um, I would actually, honestly, if it had been me, and this is, I'm going to admit this, I probably would have looked up things that he would have theoretically voted on and figured out how he would have voted. I did look up a few votes. Um, It became um, around the... yeah, there were some things I was just like, especially in the, especially post nine eleven, I was like, well, it's already going to be bleak. I don't know that I want to. <laughs> eh. um, I did make fiction out of some of the stuff that was actually up for vote, rather than getting into the actual something that was actually done. But I mean, I I looked way into things that are never going to be visible to um, the reader in any way, um, but just because I didn't want to get, I mean, delving into somebody who's actively working in politics, I didn't want to get some critical detail about, you know, I'm going to get details about how the Senate works wrong, but I didn't want to get just the basics wrong. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a ridiculous amount of research and to build the timeline, just to build the timeline. Um, 
but overall, the, the the amount of time it'll take to write the series will ultimately eclipse that research. But that first story, yeah, that the research way eclipsed. Uh, if you count research and plotting, you know, it depends upon what you consider the plotting process. So if you consider, you know, I'm sure with um, synthetic, I mean, the amount of time you spent um, in research for that way eclipsed anything, any time you spent writing on that story. <sighs> Did it ever. And then I had essays <laughs> and articles that I wrote. Um, just to get a feel for what was happening because I was writing so far in the future and I wanted to have a really concrete um, impression of what they were leaving behind. Um, because I think that 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 melancholy of being abandoned by their own by their own kind and then having to make way in a in a different form um, because of the actions taken against them because not everybody would have done it if they had had a choice but they didn't get a choice. And so there are all these people, these human beings live, um, living in synthetic bodies now. And I had to know where they came from and, and how they got there and the emotions that, so I wrote all those essays and articles um, about a tenth of which ended up on my website as a, you know, just as an exercise for people to look at. And then to get, I know, right? Then to get into the process and realize I'd actually put my story in the wrong place. And I was, oh, I was so furious. Yeah, that'd be frustrating. I think I, I spent so much time in the past focused on what they were leaving behind. And then when I plotted where they were going to go, I didn't pay enough attention. Um, and I, I just, it was a mistake. Well, wasn't that the one where you were trying not to plot and you had to make all of those decisions on the fly on the no, first day? No, that, that, was, that was Revenant. Oh, that was Revenant. Synthetic, I might have overplotted. I said it could happen to me. I think that might have been it. But also, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess this, and it isn't something that I, that I often feel when I'm writing fan fiction, um, but about 10K into writing Synthetic, I thought to myself, I've wasted this. Yeah. This should be original fiction. I, I, I wasted it's a it. Terrible letdown when you when you have that moment. <laughs> and because the thing is, is that I have changed those characters so much, they might as well be original. And I was like, why did I do this? Why, why, did, why didn't I write Rocket Man? That was the one that was really amusing to me. Anyway, why didn't I write Rocket Man? Which I had also plotted. Um, But yeah, I mean, every once in a while, you'll get an idea that's so compelling, and you'll write it, and then immediately regret what you did with it. And that's and that's where I am with synthetic because I don't, I'm not someone who's comfortable washing fan fiction, um, and I do think synthetic would be better served with original characters. Uh, that being said, um, come a point when I do take it apart and rewrite it into something original. Um, not the scenes that I've already written with fanfiction characters because I don't think they really work for what I wanted to do anyway. But I can foresee myself putting original characters into it, um, in, into the idea. Um, because um, the characters that I picked for fan it just it just isn't, it's not gelling the way I wanted it to. It's, it's not concrete. Yeah. 
That's really Rob, what are you me, saying? I, I I love what you I love what you wrote. Um, but I could see why I mean if I were in your shoes, I would have gone I would have had the same reaction. But on the other on the flip side though, the amount of world building you did versus the amount of actual writing you did is, you know, there's not there's not you could scrub all of your plots of what you'd written so far. You could you could get rid of it and start just with the world. And right. I think she means can you not scrub fan fiction and publish it? Yeah, you can. Um but I'm just morally opposed to it. Yeah. I mean we all know of several novels that have been that are scrubbed fan fiction. Um I've had a couple it's happened to me a couple times where I went, What why did I do this in fan fiction? Um Oh, okay. One of them, I got, I got so far in it that I, I don't feel like I could, and I don't think any story I would. The world building is all unique, but I don't think any story I could tell in that universe would be as interesting as the story I already told in, in the fan fiction with with fan fiction. So that would be a case if I were to do anything with that original, I would have to scrub it, and I wouldn't want to do that. It's something that, that I'm not. Um, comfortable with the other one where I um, got into it. The other one I got into it was um, um, which, which plot, I think it was last November, um, the descendant. Um, I got into the, I actually picked the descendant was my throwaway plot because all the other ideas I came up with for urban fantasy, I thought I should do original fiction with those. And I, so descendant was my, my throwaway plot, and I thought, okay, I'll do this one. I'm not too invested in it. And then I got to writing it, and I liked it so much, I started hating that I had done it for fan fiction. Um, now, that one, I don't think I got so far into it that I couldn't um, – it wouldn't be scrubbing. It would be using the world building, um, just get rid of the whole – stop working on it, and then um, use the world building and, and have a different character coming into it as a descendant as opposed to Tony. So what I've also considered yeah. is is doing an original work in my synthetic verse, and then after getting that published, publishing my own fe- fan fiction of my professional work. <laughs> See, I'd be down for that. Do do my fan fiction of myself. <laughs> like, here's my synthetic original story, and here's my synthetic fan fiction. You're welcome. <laughs> there are there are some. Um, there are some writers who have used their um, original world that they've built as as um, like crossover universes for their fan fiction. I think that's cool. So, so. but yeah, um, yeah. But synthetic is actually the first one that I ever um, made that mistake with. I mean, a lot of times like I have ideas that I think, okay, I'll have more freedom with this in fan fiction, so this is where I'm going to go with it. And when I say original fiction, I'm not thinking to myself, I'm going to sell this. What I'm saying is is that um, for me, it isn't about the money. It's about the story and telling the story. And um, going where I did with synthetic, with fan fiction characters, did not serve the story I wanted to tell. And basically, I was, I was writing OCs with fan fiction characters' names. Um, I took them apart too much. Um, John barely resembled who he was in canon. And that's when I and that's when it fell apart for me when I realized I had actually destroyed the characterization. That my plot was so different. But that was the challenge to put them in a different world 
but I stripped them down too much. And we did a whole whole podcast about um, about keeping your character, um, keeping the integral parts of your character um, together when you move them into a new environment. We, we dedicated hours to talking about that. And then I turned around and stripped my characters to the bones, literally actually to just their soul. <laughs> And and fucked it up, and and I, and that's a lesson that you learn, um, and because nobody's perfect, so um, do as I say, yeah, I not think, as I do. I think, and for me, in the descendant and descendant, um, it was a a case of I it. I don't know that the plot would be better served with an original character. I think it would. It's almost equal in that regard. I think the plot would have been better served if Tony wasn't at NCIS, which basically strips all the canon out. And once you strip all the canon out, um, him being at NCIS actually wanted to be a stumbling block in some ways in the story for me. And his relationship with his team and all of that drama was, became an issue. And so when canon wasn't serving and the only thing that serves the story is one character, um, that was just like I don't know. I don't know why I'm doing this this way. Right. And so I really just second guessed it. Um, the other one was um, subversive, and that was just because I did a whole new world challenge, and the characters basically none of them looked much like they did in canon. Um, and I'm like, I have really no idea why. <laughs> I'm trying to make them because that was the one where we talked about the whole new world challenge, where we tra- talked about trying mm-hmm. to preserve the essence of the characters, and that was really difficult. Because when you when you've taken them, I think I did better with Steve than I did with Tony. Um, I agree. Because once you once you, <laughs> yeah, I mean it was just Tony was just so he had such a radically different upbringing, and I mean he's, he's nothing like I he did was better with Rodney than I did with John. I I totally fucked up John's characterization, um, but I feel like we, Rodney we was up, on we, spot. We fu- we fucked up our unicorns. What the hell? We did, we did. We fucked up our unicorns. Because um, if I have a unicorn in Stargate, it's it's John Shepard, and I think that should be pretty obvious. Um, and Harry Potter, and it's Harry Potter. <laughs> Although lately, it might, it might be Hermione. <laughs> it's a toss up. And if I have a unicorn in Hobbit, I didn't know it, but it's actually Thorin. I just <laughs> <laughs> I spent all that time bitching about um, there being no women in the Hobbit and making Bilbo a girl and then turn around and Thorin is my fucking unicorn. I'm just saying. I think Thorin would be my unicorn in the Hobbit too, although it'd be a <laughs> toss up there. It'd be a bit of a toss up. Yeah, you know, I think part of the reason why I had such a letdown with Descendant is because that was, it was around the time that I wrote Descendant because that was last November, right? I'm so, my time on my own, I mean, I was moving when that was all going on, too. So that was... Um, is I have gotten... I have probably started... I've got pieces of uh, at least 15 original novels at this point. And there's some reason I'm just stalling out with... And I haven't, like, picked at it too much. I just keep starting a different story. <laughs> it's terrible. And I was like, I got so much further in this one. And it's basically an original story. So... I, I mean, it's original world building and all this, and I was like, I got so much further with this than with all the other things I'm working on, and it was just really frustrating, I think. I think I just felt a lot of frustration around um, 
how much better that story had gone. Of course, most of the original projects I've been working on, I haven't been doing it, taking them from the original fantasy, I mean, um, urban fantasy slant. I don't know. I wasn't expecting that story to go well. So it was just, it was just one of those things where you kind of get into it. And sometimes you never know what you're going to get. I did say in a um, podcast once before that I would like to write an original fic for Sean and Declan. And someone hit me in my email and asked me if that was kind of against my own rule about not scrubbing fan fiction. Um, and um, in what I'd way like are they fan fiction? To all you bitches that Sean Taylor and Declan Frost are my original characters. <laughs> they belong to me. Just like Matt Shepard is an original character. He is not canon. Um, and he belongs to me. <laughs> And if I want to sit his pretty ass down in an original story, I will do so. <laughs> I wouldn't because I, I would have a hard time separating him from his fictional family, um, but his fandom family. But uh, when it, but when it, when it comes to Sean and Declan, I actually do have a, prog- a work in progress for them um, in fan fiction. Um, in, in in original fiction, and um, because they belong to me, those are my characters, and no, I don't consider that hypocrisy, because they're not. They they might have been born in fandom, but they're original characters. So if I ever wrote an original work, all the works that they appear in would be would be fan fiction for that original work. <laughs> well, it's you know retroactive fan fiction. You grandfathered in the fan fiction, yeah. I yeah, think it's interesting how pe- people like to try to find the hypocrisy. It's like I've, you know, you make a statement, you say this is your thing, and so you feel about something. And it, I, you know, I don't remember that much of what people say that I'd be able to pick out their hypocrisy so easily. But assuming it even existed, but it's like people are trying to really find it. I get, you know, we've talked about that. I get that a lot. People trying to find inconsistencies and in things that I've said or, or whatever, and. Sometimes there's no inconsistency. Sometimes times has changed, and I've gotten new information and changed my mind. <laughs> that doesn't make me a hypocrite. Yeah, changed the perspective. <laughs> you know, things I said on the podcast four years ago, and Rogue can attest to this because Rogue's currently listening to my old podcast, um, that I might not say now. Or, you know, I had a whole big – actually, I've had two meltdowns on Live Journal. One of them was about Rule 63, and the other one was about Mel Preg. If you take a look at my site and my EAD, you will know that I don't have a problem with either one of those things now. But at one time I did. I found it very offensive to change a male character into a female character. And I, let me um, give you a little, is that caveat on that? I do find it offensive when you make a male character female so you can avoid writing gay sex. I find that really offensive. And I don't think anybody could legitimately accuse me of that. Yeah. I had no problem with the butt sex. <laughs> that is where the origins of the dislike of the genre, of the trope came from, or the genre, depending on how you look at it, um, was there were a lot of women doing it to avoid, well, I'll just, I don't want to write that gay stuff, so I'll, I'll change one of the characters. And it was such an ugly thing that people got a big hate on about it. And I, and I, you know, and I was in that camp for a long time. Well, I still am for those reasons, but. Um, right. Um, we got a minute and 10 seconds. 
Something's wrong with her clock. <laughs> I forgot to talk about this tomorrow. Let's put it down. We're going to discuss male preg and um, Rule 63 tomorrow and changing perspectives. Those are our topics for tomorrow. Say good night, Jilly Bean. Good night, everyone. Fuck a duck. Okay, hold on.